The Insulone Podcast is brought to you by Cybionics, an emerging CGM brand that focuses on simplifying how individuals aged 18 and above monitor and control their blood sugar levels. Upon becoming available on the market, the Cybionics GS1 CGM has helped users worldwide navigate the complexities of diabetes management with more confidence and peace of mind. Thanks to Cybionics, now more people are able to view and share their real-time glucose data, receive customizable glucose alarms, and generate full AGP reports, all directly from an intuitive Cybionics app, empowering them with the necessary information to make better decisions about their health. Cybionics combines data accuracy and comfort of wear, which is important to us all, with a feature-rich app. The 14-day scanning-free and calibration-free Cybionics GS1 CGM aims to deliver reliable, seamless diabetes management experiences. For more, check out CybionicsCGM.com. This is the Insulone Podcast, where I, Owen Costello, try to redefine diabetes. In this week's episode... I'm running up and down the hostel corridor constantly, and I'm thinking, God, if I can't even make it three-minute walk to the pub, how on earth am I going to be going to A&E and back to theatres, etc., for 13 hours straight? How am I going to get through these shifts? But before we get into that, everything you hear on the Insulone podcast is from my own personal experience. And if you have any worries or issues regarding your diabetes please contact a medical professional. Now, let's get stuck into this episode. How's it going? And welcome back to the Insulone Podcast with myself, Owen, obviously. Uh, I hope you're well. I hope the week has been treating you well so far. And I hope you are ready to listen to an unbelievable episode. And this is, I know I enjoy all the episodes that we do with guests, of course, but this one really stood out to me because we covered so much. We covered a lot of the physical, we covered a lot of the mental, we covered a lot of the emotional when it comes to diagnosis and just adapting to a new life with diabetes whenever you have been diagnosed. And the guest that I have today is Mr. Tony Mihalidis. And Tony is a surgeon. He was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes about a year and a half ago. And Tony originally got in touch with us and he sent myself and Graham a really in-depth and it was just, it was a fantastic email that he sent in to us. And we read it out on the podcast and I responded to it on the podcast as we do when, when you like to email in. And then myself and Graham were chatting afterwards and we thought, we thought that was such a great email. I'd, I'd love to talk with Tony in a bit more detail. So we reached out, we got him on the podcast. And as I've said, it's just an unbelievable episode because a lot of the time I kind of reminisce back to when I was diagnosed. And I think back to like the emotion and the uncertainty and the stress and what I was thinking at that time. And it's very interesting to get somebody's first-hand current experience with the emotion and the stress and the uncertainty and the confusion around your new life with type 1 diabetes. And Tony articulates so much of that so well in this episode. And it's just, again, an unbelievable episode. For anybody who 
lives with diabetes, of course, like every other episode of this podcast, but particularly for anybody who has been diagnosed relatively recently, you will get a, a really deep insight into another person going through something similar. And you'll get a really detailed insight into how you can get past that initial shock and sadness to a certain extent, of course, step by step by step, physically, mentally, and emotionally, and how Tony has done it so that he continues to be a surgeon, so that he continues to be a great fiance, so that he continues to be a very ambitious and hardworking person. So again, love this episode and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did recording it. Take it easy. But Tony, like I said to you, I've been really looking forward to this episode and I've been looking forward to this episode ever since you sent in your your email to the podcast. Obviously, myself and Graham read it out on one of the episodes and I took a big deep breath in there because I'm thinking about the email itself, Tony, and it was so in-depth. It was so detailed and I felt as if when Graham was reading it out on the podcast, I was like diagnosed all over again, <laughs> right? which oh, which is a, a very unusual sort of feeling. So mm. you were diagnosed 14 odd months ago. Do you want to, I, I feel like Tony, you have a bit of a unique sort of introduction to diabetes. So do you want to give us a bit of insight in terms of where you are, what happened, how you knew something was wrong? Yeah, of course, man. Um, well, firstly, thank you so much for having me on this uh, podcast. You know, I just want to say I have listened to this for so many months. So, you know, to be on here is great. So, <laughs> yeah. Pleasure, pleasure. Um, yeah, so it was, yeah, so it was about 14 months ago now. Um, I was, I was in Greece and... It's only with some hindsight that I say, you know, that I can say something wasn't right, you know. But and it was only, I think, when it reached a stage where um, I was probably quite far down the line that it clicked in my own brain that something was wrong. But I was in Greece. Um, and I think the reason it took so long is because in my own mind, there was there was like always a, a rational explanation mm. um, for Ever I was feeling right. I was in Greece. We go every year. I'm half Greek, so it was really hot. We had a heat wave, and I'm talking. It was nearly forty. So I was drinking gallons, but in my mind, that made complete sense. I was. It was scorching, um, and I was having to go to the bathroom, and I was peeing loads and loads. But I was thinking to myself, "Well, this is completely normal, right?" Because I'm. I'm peeing loads because I'm I'm drinking loads. I'm drinking loads because it's 38 degrees and I'm in Greece. This, this is this is all completely normal. Mm. Um, and I tell you what, I'll share with you. I it got so bad. The diuresis um, got so bad that I started taking a water bottle to bed with me so I could <laughs> fill it because I knew how much I was going to pass overnight. Uh, oh. So you, you, you don't you don't you don't really drink the tap water in Greece. You, you buy water bottles. You know you can buy these like two three liter bottles of water, and then when they're empty, I was like, right, I'm just gonna take this empty one up the bed with me because this is gonna make my life easier. And then it reached a stage where I was like, this is not right. So 
Um, and then that spilled over into the days and then I started to feel tired and eventually we're just in the cafe and I thought, right, this is, I'm going every five minutes. I can't stop drinking. This is not normal. And to be honest with you, I'm a bit embarrassed because, you know, I have to admit, you know, I am medical and it's probably something I should have clocked a lot sooner, to be honest, mate, but it took me a while. Um, but it got there. And like I said, I thought to myself, right, this is, this is diabetes, I'm absolutely sure I have it. So um, I I called my GP. I was still in the UK and I remember being on the, uh, this is a really blurry line, I could barely hear my GP, but I just about got through to him that I have type one. And he said, come and see me as soon as you're back. And I, I flew back in three days. So literally the day after I returned, um, I, I went to see him. And I said, this is the story. I told him I was medical. We skipped straight to the point. He did a finger prick and he, the glucose was so high on the, on the little recorder he had there in his clinic that he couldn't, um, it was unrecordable, which means if it's unrecordable, that means it's so high, not so low, it's so high that they can't detect the reading. So he's like, right. Um, you basically need to go straight to hospital. And the funny thing was, mate, I said, I, I still feel okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I left that appointment and went straight to work. And I went straight to work feeling quite tired and groggy. But again, you know, my, my sort of macho mind, oh, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, carry on. Yeah. And then I get a call from the diabetes team saying, look, can you come into hospital? And I just felt gradually worse and worse. And by the end of that evening, I just felt like I was hit by a lorry. Um, and then I was ended, it, it was such good timing because... I ended up in in DKA, just absolutely, you know, flattened mm. um, that same evening. So, talk about good timing. Um, mm. uh, and then it was a couple of hours, stay, a couple of days stay in A and E. But that was so. That's my story in a nutshell. Okay. That's you know, that's what happened. I, I I can definitely relate to uh, Tony the different symptoms and signs that you're seeing and justifying it for whatever different reason because when I was diagnosed it was like around Christmas time in Ireland and uh, at that age like there's loads of going out there's a, a good amount of socializing you know Christmas time you're drinking more alcohol you're not sleeping as much so my tiredness was down to me having late nights not sleeping much my thirst was down to the fact that I was having a few drinks when I was going out and there was always like essentially a rational reason as to why these things were happening. And much like mm. you said, that kind of macho or macho men mentality, like I was 19 thinking like, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm healthy. I'm I'm 19. You know, I'm a, I'm a young man. Surely there's nothing wrong with me. And you kind of brush it to the side. But something, yeah. Tony, something stood out to me there when you said you were obviously bringing a bottle to bed with you just in case. That's the first I've heard of that one, by the way. <laughs> but makes sense. I'll go down in history. Yeah, exactly. But you said, Tony, that you you called your GP and then like obviously at that stage, your, your bloods were already quite high. And obviously at that stage, you weren't feeling great to say the least. So mm. you called your GP and then you left Greece three days later, and then you went to the GP the day after you arrived home. What were those four days like? What did you feel like those four days? You know, that's a really good question. And to be honest with you, I've never stopped to think about it. I 
funnily enough, even though I thought I had the diagnosis right, I wasn't um, completely convinced. I was like, there still could be anything. So to be honest with you, I still, I probably just carried on living in some naivety. Um, I remember the evening I got back, um, we had those, uh, you know, those juices that coca-cola make but it's not coca-cola but they they own the company they're extremely good juices um they're probably not good for you but they're tasty um i forget what they're called anyway turns out coca-cola has a juice company and it was a it was a really really, uh, it was you know super sugar heavy heavy smoothie yeah and even i got back i from gofu i um i downed the whole bowl which is something you know, adding fuel to the that. fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just making it worse than it actually is. Um, and so, to be honest with you, I I knew something was wrong. I had an idea, but I, I I just carried on living with some naivety. To be honest with you, I didn't experience um, much health anxiety around that time. Um, but I knew something was wrong. And I, I also just to add. I remember going out just maybe like a, it literally was about two months, maybe six weeks before any of this happened. And I went on a, a night out with some friends and they were all, you know, they said, oh, mate, you look, I'll tell you, you look a bit skinny at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember being exhausted. And even then I remember, you know, we stayed at a hotel that night and I remember getting up and I didn't go to the bathroom. And, but, but this was like weeks and weeks prior, right? So, but it's only in hindsight that like a point of diagnosis that I was connecting the dots of the way I'd honestly felt probably going back several months in terms of losing all my weight. Um, I, I remember, I don't know whether or not my, um, my fiance would be too happy me sharing the story, but the day I came back from Greece, um, I came home and I took my top off and she started to cry because I looked so skinny wow. and she had never seen me look so skinny in all her life and I knew something was wrong with me I mean between you and I my my my, my medic brain really switched on okay the first thing particularly in our group age the first thing I started to think about was um, weight loss in a in our age categories is testicular cancer. So I remember thoroughly examining my balls and um, worrying about that as sort of worst case of the spectrum, right? Mm. And we then hadn't weighed myself in ages, but as soon as we got the diagnosis, I came back and I'd lost 13 kilos. But again, that's happened to me gradually. And so this had probably been happening for, you know, quite a long time, but really it's only in hindsight you get to make sense of it all, you know? Hmm. So was there, was there part of you, Tony, that was kind of thinking like just almost being in denial in the sense that like, there's, there's not anything wrong with me, even though these things are kind of going, going on in your head because you had these reasons as to, why like you were you were thirsty why you were tired why you you know didn't necessarily feel as good as you should like when you got the official diagnosis what was that like 
Were you shocked? Were you relieved? What was the emotion around that? It was a... It was a variety of things. At the time of diagnosis, I felt... I felt terrible. You know, I felt unwell. Um, and as soon as I got put on insulin, after about 12 hours, I felt so much better. Like, no one sleeps well in a hospital, right? And I remember lying there in the hospital bed in A&E, having my fingers pricked every two hours, and it was, you know, I definitely didn't get much sleep that night. But um, I had that insulin back on board, and my God, it made a world of difference to my energy levels. I felt like a different, a completely different human being. And so I think initially there was this, it, it was, I just felt relieved and I'd felt so much better than I'd felt in months that actually I probably didn't care in that moment in time that I had diabetes. I was just so glad that I felt better. Mm. It was amazing. Honestly, the change was amazing. Um, of course, you know, the reality soon set in as I, as I left. And I remember we, Obviously, you know, as you do, you have a you have a million questions when you get diagnosed before you leave. And we wanted to ask our uh, my consultant everything before we left. But initially, it was just relief. But that changed with time, it's fair to say. Mm. <laughs> so you're obviously coming from and, and still in the medical field, in the medical world. So you're no like... You're no stranger to diabetes, I would imagine. And I'm sure you're well-versed in it and obviously more so now. But because of what you must have known from being in the medical field about diabetes, like what what were your fears? What were you kind of concerned about or what do you feel this had meant for you? And with that, I suppose a secondary question, do you feel like that has been accurate in terms of what you initially thought about how your life would be, is that accurate or do you feel it's completely different actually now living with it? Wow, such good, such good questions. You'll have to stop me if I talk too much, mate. Uh, please don't feel... Yeah, that's what you're here to do. <laughs> feel free to cut me off at any point. Absolutely not. <laughs> I guess two main things I I touch on, I think... Because when I was diagnosed, I was, you know, worried about my whole life changing. I was worried about every aspect of my life. First and foremost was how is it going to affect my career? And obviously, I've got the practical reasons around that of, you know, we, we, we all need to put shoes on our feet. We, 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 we you know, we need an income. But um, it, the diagnosis actually coincided with me starting surgical training. And this is something I've I've worked years and years and years to attain, right? And I think that mattered to me because I guess, you know, I'm not that I'm saying that it's like my whole purpose, because it's definitely not, but being a surgeon is definitely part of, of who I am. I think it, it 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 gives me a reason. It's it's a job that I'm that makes me really excited to get out of bed in the morning, right? It, it does give me with a with a purpose in life and in the way I wanna wanna help other people. And so my first thought is, God, how am I going to be a surgeon? 
look, my first got started on um, exogenous insulin because I opted for pens rather than closed loop pumps, etc. It was completely new to me, right? And it, it's stronger. We injected a higher doses than the pancreas actually injected. It, it sticks around for a lot longer as well. And so I got home and I literally went for a walk right around the corner to the pub. Uh, and it, th- this pub is about, it's like a three minute walk from where we live at the moment. And I high before I got there. So I could barely walk to the pub, right? So I was thinking to myself, how on earth am I going to do these? Especially when I'm on call, um, those shifts are really, really busy. You know, you barely have time to take a piss. And I'm running up and down the hostel corridor constantly. And I'm thinking, God, if I can't even make it three-minute walk to the pub, how on earth am I going to be going to A&E and back and to theatres, et cetera, for 13 hours straight? How am I going to get through these shifts? And I, I remember distinctively my my diabetes team at the time of diagnosis, and this is by no means a criticism to them, but saying, oh, you know what? You know, when you're in the middle of surgery and you're in the middle of operating, you can just, you know, Maybe someone could just put a straw through your surgical mask, and uh, you know if you're if, if you're trending low, they could just sort of feed you some apple juice. And my mind was thinking, right, you know, I I wouldn't get behind a steering wheel um, if I was high for it. So in the same vein, I would never ever think of putting a knife to someone's skin, you know. And I thought, right, <laughs> I wouldn't be confident to... being the patient that, at at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, right, this is going to work. I have to do you know so i was questioning everything to be honest mate i was thinking right how am i going to do my job i'm going to have to change my career this isn't going to work you know or it it seemed that all the stuff i wanted to do and i worked so hard to do was sort of was slipping away from me and i think that was quite a difficult thing uh to deal with and i thought well what else am i going to do in my life if i if i don't do this and i really did look at other options and i thought it was taking me away from from me and I think that's when I realized that actually I was starting to get in and again you know I'm, I'm sounding like my my own worst critic but I'm starting to get in this harsh mentality of I'm letting diabetes take over my life and actually I'm going to make my decisions around the diabetes and what I realized and came to realize quite quickly is actually I have to take control of this I have to be in control of the diabetes, not it in control of of me. And I had to find out, right, how do I slowly claw back and reclaim my life and fit diabetes around me and not the other way around? And really that set me off on a big journey of, you know, figuring out, well, how can I get through a four, five, six hour operation without worrying? And what are the things I need to do? And what are the changes I need to make? And obviously that's a whole whole different rabbit hole in itself but (laughs) that was one of the most challenging things at the time i'd say the second thing was so when i started my surgical training as i say it was more or less at the time of diagnosis and i started on vascular surgery now essentially that's the the surgery that deals with sort of the diseases of and the surgery of arteries and veins um and the body circulation and the mainstay the vast majority of inpatients in vascular surgery are sadly people living with the complications of diabetes both type 1 and type 2 and being a surgeon i was very used to seeing people at the 
at a certain extreme of the spectrum. So day in and day out, immediately after diagnosis, the only thing I was seeing every single day of my life were the complications of the disease that I now have. Oh. And I have to be honest with you, looking looking back, that was probably quite traumatic for me. Ultimately, you know, these are the people I was there to help, the people I'm there to serve. And that always inspired me. But that's not to say that it wasn't without any worry or fear of my own because I wasn't seeing anyone who was doing well with diabetes. Mm. All I was seeing were the complications and I thought, God, is, is this it? You know, now I'm in a completely different stage of my life and I know that's not the, well, that doesn't necessarily have to be the end game. Mm. But at the time, yeah, that was a challenge. Not ideal types of surgery to be involved with, I suppose, Tony, during that time of your life, even though, look, you're obviously massively passionate about it and it's obviously what you love to do. But as I'm listening to that, I'm kind of feeling stressed out myself in the sense that it's like, I've just been diagnosed with this thing that I kind of know about, but it's still essentially brand new to me on a on a personal level in terms of living with it. But I am completely and constantly exposed to the reality of it. Like what can potentially happen? And it must have mm. been pretty scary, was it? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly that. I think it was a it's a tough job to have, nevertheless. But to come home with that additional sort of mental fatigue and and and, and burnout at a time when it was just so fresh in my mind. Um, and when really I didn't know, even as a doctor, like I still didn't really know any better, you know, that I thought, right. And in some ways, and probably I have to say not a healthy way at all, you see that day in and day out and then you start to think, right, what can I do to help minimize in as much as I can this from being the case? Mm. And I think that's a great thing to to aim for. That's a great goal. That's that's healthy. I just think what was spurring me on to that at the time probably wasn't the healthiest thing. Mm. You know, rather than thinking I'm doing this because I'm I'm taking ownership of my health and this is my health goal. It was right. We've just sadly had to amputate someone's leg off and you know i unscrubbed from that surgery thinking gosh i i hope that's not my leg one day and that was it was challenging and then if it was like okay what do i is there anything i can do to stop this being my leg and mm. so i probably had this unhealthy fuel in the time that was spurring me on but it probably brought me to a a good place and it's not the way I think now but at the time again it was just that it was being driven by that fear response mm. and the way I look at it Tony even even with my own management like in my opinion it's important to have an element of fear kind of like mm. surrounding your management overall now I don't I don't believe that our our management or our like 
the daily things that we do to keep our health in the place that it should be, should be primarily driven by a fear. But I've said this, I've said this plenty of times in this podcast, plenty of times in the program that I have, like Mm -hmm. I have a bit of fear. There's like, there's a hint of fear that I always have that I think is important because in my opinion, how can you not have some degree of fear when you live with type one diabetes? Because if you're aware of potentially what can happen, which both of us obviously are. And I think even just based on what I do and like all the conversations that I've had over the years, I'm similar to yourself, maybe not to the the same extent as you are, Tony, but I am exposed to the reality of diabetes quite often. So that hint of fear, I think can be massively beneficial because it's like, oh, this, like this, this could happen. And I need to make sure that it doesn't. Because if I pretend like everything's fine all the time and I pretend like none of this can happen to me, it can catch up on you quite quickly. So that, that hint of fear, I think kind of sprinkled into your management is, is an important part of it. And it's also the reality of the condition. Can I ask you, Tony, I can only imagine how stressful that was dealing with your own diagnosis. And then the reality of I've just amputated somebody's leg. This could potentially happen to me. How did you, how do you alleviate that fear so that it's not like paralyzing you in a sense? Yeah. So I think primarily what helped me cope with that was education. This is where I actually completely immersed myself in the online community and ask this before anyone i never use facebook i never use instagram just wasn't my just wasn't my thing you know mm. whereas now i've just gleaned so much benefit from those things and from those platforms and and reaching out to things like your podcast and following your podcast and immersing my you know books textbooks conversations with my health team it was this sort of multifaceted approach to learning and meeting people who were doing well. And because that's one thing I remember distinctively in my follow-up with my consultant, I said, um, at this point, I must have been, oh, I was probably about six months in. And I had my follow-up and I hadn't seen her since. And I said, look, what, what, you know, what, what, what are the chances of me at that time? Bearing in mind, at the time I got diagnosed, my HbA1c was 124. Oh. And I went to see her in clinic. And at that point, it was, I'd got it down to 32. I guess that's 5%, isn't it? Really so, good, really good. Really. I know you have other, we don't use those units in the UK. but And I said to her, look, what, what are the likelihood of me getting complications and or of this shortening my life or et cetera? And, you know, she said, provided you take good care of yourself, she has now has patients who are actually living with dementia and who have type one. And the reason is that that's so relevant is because i.e. there are people living well into old age who are still completely capacitous and um, in, in a physical sense, 
not living with the complications. And this is what I think, Owen, is that. Sorry, just sorry to cut you off, Tony. Yeah. Just just to clarify, yeah, yeah. because yeah. just to clarify, that's that's essentially a good thing. Because the point you're making is people are living so long that they're getting dementia as opposed to these patients have gotten dementia because of type one. Just so people absolutely clarify. Yeah, just just so absolutely. that's clarified for anyone listening. Just, just absolutely. In case. Yeah. yeah, no. Perfect, I'm so perfect. glad you clarified. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. In terms of living to a ripe old age that amazing, amazing. Living with dementia rather than having their life, you know, truncated with the, with the complications of diabetes. Yeah. And that's why I think, you know, one of the things I think going is that it's a, by no means would I ever try to undermine how hard a condition this is to live with. It's no matter how good your control, I think mentally, physically, it's an incredibly challenging condition to live with. And that stress or that worry, you know, even if you say to yourself, well, actually, I feel I'm in a good place, even my numbers are good, but actually psychologically, I, I, I still worry about things every day. And even if the worry is small, it's this constant, it's nevertheless constant. Mm. And that can be a cumulative thing, right? That can build up and that can lead to the burnout, I think. But at the same time, it's also the best time in history to be alive with this disease. Mm-hmm. We have access to, I mean, within a couple of weeks, I was put on absolutely life-changing tech. We have, I mean, I can only really speak on, you know, behalf of the UK, but CGMs are now available to every single person with type 1 diabetes. We have access to the, you know, a wealth of rapid acting insulins that were never available back in the day. And mm. these in as much as possible have, you know, led me to live in a, you know, quote, normal, unquote life. And it's not about, it, that doesn't mean it's easy. It's just to say that I never, ever take that, that privilege for granted. And I think it's very much about, having gratitude for what we do have that now and i i very much appreciate that access to these things is different for everyone in the world and that's that's a sad thing but and that's still something we need to overcome but still the best time to be alive with it absolutely i couldn't agree more and even from my own perspective tony like i i think back because i'm coming up on 12 years now and, and the start of january when i think back to like my first kind of nine, 10 years, I was finger pricking only. I didn't have a CGM. And the change in like the access to tech, obviously, of course, like you've mentioned, that can vary from country to country. But the fact that you can have a CGM, it's just like, as as you say, a lifesaver, a complete game changer. And I I often think back to like my first 10-ish years, just finger pricking. And I wonder... Would anything be different for me now, even though like my health is in a good place and I'm confident in my management and and I have been over the years too. I wonder like, would I be at a different place if I had have had access to that type of tech at an earlier stage? But hindsight's a beautiful thing. And uh, there's no point thinking about the past because essentially it's irrelevant now. You I guess on- that might also um, 
help you to have more appreciation perhaps than perhaps people who are diagnosed nowadays that you you experience the life without that and you know the difference and therefore you can appreciate that much more how how lucky we are to have it right absolutely i think it's a a cliche a couple of cliche words to use like gratitude and appreciation but they're they're so valuable to with your type 1 diabetes because it, mm. even though it's obviously a challenging condition on a daily basis on an hourly basis to a certain extent mm. having appreciation and, and gratitude for the fact that essentially i am healthy essentially it's something that is in my control for the most part and i can appreciate what i have a bit more which is important you touched on mm. tony the i suppose the comparison or not comparison, but the the connection between the physical and the mental and how that is a challenge. Mm. If you had to pick one since your diagnosis 14, 15 odd months ago, in terms of what you feel or f- what you felt maybe has been the most challenging, would you say physical or mental? Oh, mental without a doubt mental without a doubt and i think that really feeds into my my personality type i think i've always been this this ultra competitive guy and i always have had very high expectations of myself and to be honest with you on one side of the coin it's a good thing it drives me it helps me you know it's helped bring me to where i am today it's it has helped motivate me, but at the same time, I won't lie that being my, my own worst critic has probably put me into, into dark places. And to be honest with you, not just regarding the diabetes, but before this happened, you know, something went the way I didn't plan it to, or I didn't want it to, I'd probably have reacted more negatively than I should have. And I've probably suffered a bit from that, but I think I've had to be very careful about how nowadays that spills over into my my diabetes care, you know, being my own worst critic, it can be tough. You know, you can use it in diabetes. It's great that I'm motivated and driven. I want to control this. I, I, I want the best control I possibly can, but at the same time, that can become obsessive, that can become unhealthy and you know, the perfect example is time and range. I have these ridiculously high expectations of myself. And so I say, you know, God, I've just had a meal and I'm nine. This is, you know, my, I'm, I'm at a nine millimoles. This is ridiculous. And I, you know, back in the old days, you know, the first, you know, couple of months I died diagnosis is probably where I'm sure you've, the all, the all too familiar, like rage bolus. And, mm. and then I go low and then I'd be furious about the fact I was low and, I was really beating myself up and my mental health really took a hit and it really affected me because I felt so guilty, not just to myself, but to the impact that I was having on my partner and how that made me around other people. That was a very big challenge. I had to teach myself kindness. And if you need, I would say if you need one thing with this, with this diagnosis, it's patience and it's, self-compassion and it's self-love and to be honest with you that is something that 
I probably didn't have too much of before now and is something that I've definitely um, developed to be kind to myself and be like, okay, ah, oh, you know, I've gone a little bit high here. Why has that happened? What could I do differently? What am I going to do next time rather than, oh, let's just inject 10 units or something and be furious and angry with myself. And, and there were times, mate, where I would just, you'd get annoyed with it. And then I'd let that ruin the rest of my evening. And then that got me more furious because then I'd be angry at the fact that I just wasted all this time. I can relate to all of that, Tony. I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sure, man. And so getting to a place where I can be like, okay, this happened. That's pretty, you know, that's pretty shy, but I'm going to learn this. This has happened and then I'm going to let go of it because I actually want to carry on enjoying myself. Mm. And I, I don't want to waste my time and I want to make the most of the people around me and the time I'm spending with them. I don't want to go in the, you know, I don't want to go in a bad mood for the next six hours, mm. but that took time. And that is, is, you know, I understand that that is easier said than done. Mm. I can absolutely relate to pretty much everything you've just said. And it's great to hear, Tony, the already the self-awareness that you have with it, because oftentimes everything you've just spoken about in terms of like, why has this happened? What can I do differently? What can I adjust? What can I change? This is a moment in time as opposed to my entire day. I don't want to allow this ruin the rest of my day. Like you have a massive amount of self-awareness already, which is great to hear because usually from my experience, even speaking with people, like it can take a longer period of time for us to kind of get to that stage. And right. I'm in no way surprised that you said the mental is more challenging because for me, it's no debate because it's constantly there. And you touched on us about how, you have that bit of fear or that concern or that worry and it might not be a massive amount, but it's always kind of there. And when I touch on like that fear, as I said, like that kind of hint of fear, I define it as almost like a really, really quiet humming in the back of my mind. That's always kind of there. And it doesn't necessarily dictate what I do or what I don't do, but because your diabetes is always there. It's always like that humming is always kind of there. Absolutely. I, yeah, you've hit the nail right on the head for me. And that's exactly how it is. And then I actively and sort of consciously reflect on whether that is making me a slightly different person because you've got this, this baseline stress, no matter, I think no matter how well you're you're doing with the with the disease something is something's going to be there right it's, it's never something you can turn off or neglect and then you know there are times when i think well something might happen in my day and i think right well something bad happens in the day and i think oh actually i may have coped with that a little bit better if i was at a perhaps a different baseline of stress, but because I've got this constantly humming in the background. And again, it's not about trying to find excuses or or anything like that, but it is it is something I think to consciously reflect on and to think. Mm. Just again, going back to sort of the I think something I've learned from being on the other side of things is 
going back to when I was in med school, like in the first couple of years, you learn all about the biochemistry and the path of physiology of all these things. And then you you go into your, you know, the, the, the next year and you learn about how these things clinically present. And then you go into your next year and you start seeing and and, and these and treating these patients and and you get you get you get taught all these diagnostic algorithms and ways of of reasoning and and thinking. And from my experience, I think this is one of the issues is with what I have now as a as someone with living diabetes, going to see a doctor, what I realized is we have completely different agendas. So you go and see your your endo and it's about okay so you know what's and again absolutely zero criticism of my team again they've been amazing but you know, there you go you know okay what's your hb1c yeah okay great what's your time and range oh yeah how much what, what long acting you're on at the minute okay yeah how many units of fast acting you take and that that's what matters to them and probably a couple of years ago that would have been all that mattered to me too because that's all i was ever taught right mm-hmm. but in reality the agenda is completely different because although that's what mattered to them, that's it's not what mattered to me. Mm. What I was struggling with was the mental side of things. Mm. If there is any disconnect, I think that's where it can often lie. 100%. 100%. And this is something that comes up very, very, very often. In all types of conversations that I have, even, again, even in the program that we have, like this comes up a lot. And it's it's that exact word of the disconnect and mm. the disconnect between the reality of you living with diabetes mm. and the reality of, the, again, no criticism, but the reality of them learning about diabetes. Because I'm sure there are other conditions like this, of course, but from my experience, as I've seen firsthand, it's a very unique condition to live with in the sense that like, unless you live with it, you have no idea what it's like. Like you understand it logically, you understand the physiology of it. You understand that like insulin does this and exercise does this. But if you live with it, like there's a whole different world that opens up mentally and emotionally that you can't have access to unless you live with it. Yeah. So you essentially have a bit of a unique experience or you, you're in a unique position, given the fact that you are a doctor, you you have been in the medical field for, for years, and now you also have diabetes. So you have access to that mental and emotional universe that opens up, as I said, when you get diagnosed mm. with to use your term, with the different agendas that, say, a patient has and an endo may have, how do you feel that can be improved? If you were to go in and give your diabetic team or your endos or write a new textbook around diabetes and and dealing with diabetic patients, what would you put in it? How would you change that agenda so that you as a patient come out feeling better than you did going in. That was part one of this episode. If you are listening to this on the day of the release, part two will be out tomorrow. But if you're listening on any other day, part two is the next episode on our list. 